everybody, this is What the What, and we're here again with Renee. Renee, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Renee, and I'm very tired. I stayed out way too late tonight, last night. See? And so bad, I don't even know what day it is. <laughs> Jeff, what do we need to know about you? Jeff, um, just been spending a lot of time in the pool lately and did the hardest thing I've ever done today, which is try to photograph dogs underwater. Oh. It was, did not go over well. Yeah, dogs are not necessarily the most uh, cooperative of models. No. Learned. Nope. So, next up, cats. So two, two, two rules, in, I'm not doing film, I'm doing stills, but two rules in film is don't work with animals and don't work underwater. And uh, I can check both those. Don't do it. All right, good advice. Don't shoot dogs underwater. We'll remember that. <laughs> Don't, right, photo and don't, actually, don't shoot, photograph dogs underwater. Don't shoot, shoot, don't shoot the, or photograph dogs underwater. Shoot the dog might actually come up in our conversation later today. <laughs> okay, shoot the dog. All right, I'm going to look for that. That's an Easter egg. So I'm Scott, and I'm a photographer and filmmaker, and um, I don't really usually wear fuzzy slippers, but um, under the right circumstances, I might be convinced. So, um, I, you know, I thought I would share with you guys, because I think this is fascinating, but we were all here for a pool party yesterday in the very same pool that you weren't shooting, but you were photographing dogs. And um, because the bathroom, somebody was in the bathroom, I changed my clothes here in the <laughs> opulent What the What studio. And so I just want you to have that picture in your head as we as we start today. So, all right, got but it? I picture it. But with fuzzy slippers. <laughs> okay, good, good. So um, we're going to talk about the anti-hero. And um, I want to say that we had a conversation just prior to... Oh, wait. Okay, we're going we're gonna to roll back a little bit. Before we get into our discussion about the anti-hero, we always talk about something that's very near and dear to at least two of our hearts here, and that is beer. So, and Jeff, what do, we, what do we got? So this is my second favorite beer in the world. Oh. This is from Historic Brewery in Flagstaff, Arizona. Oh. This is the, pie, the Cherry Vanilla Pie Hole Porter. Uh, almost impossible to find in in Tucson, so I actually picked up a six pack of these, and these are the last remaining two from my last trip to Flagstaff. And Renee, wow, okay, uh, this is like an A plus. I don't even know what my rating scale is anymore for this, but this is some on point graphic design. It's got a real vintage look because yeah. it's a cherry vanilla porter, and so it's going like it's harkening back to a different time. It's a single two colors, yeah, but that vintage yeah. font, ooh, yeah, the, the the font the well font is beautiful. Done. The, the the it's kind of a it's kind of got like a fifties retro. Yep. Um, yeah. Route 66 kind of jive, which which it's actually on Route 66 te oh. technically, so or a block from Route 66. I and, channel. Did we try just a tiny bit too hard to be hipster? Just a tiny bit. Too that hard. that no. Okay. It's, it's Flagstaff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay, it's, it's Flagstaff. So we can't. Listen, my hipster hard. threshold is high. That is okay. not even close. When was the last time you were in Flagstaff? Put it in. Yeah. Put it in a mason jar, and I would still be okay with okay. it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. We may do that. So. All right. And we're gonna open them. Right. Yep. Here we go. A moment of silence while we take a drink. Glug 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 glug. And, oh, that's nice. I see why you like it. We can we can kill two birds with one stone because we we forgot to introduce one person, who is very important in this room. Who's that? And I who always, also I and who also forget. wanted to try the pie hole porter. So, but she was denied. So give 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 Anna the drink. This would be my lovely wife Anna. She is our our silent partner and producer, and she just gave us the thumbs up on the pie hole porter. Not two thumbs up, Anna. Just pass. The oh, can two back to thumbs me. up. That's right. 
So, um, so our conversation today is going to be around the anti-hero and this question that has arises of like why is the anti-hero so popular right now? I'll talk a little bit about how we got here, but I, I want to say something. We had a conversation. We've had conversations for weeks prior to doing this about what exactly the anti-hero is, and here's the thing with the anti-hero between the three of us we can't even exactly agree on what that means. So you may hear if you're listening to this that each of us is going to come at this from a little different perspective, which is not uncommon for us that we come at things from a little bit different That's perspective. That's why we're doing a podcast. That's yeah. why we're, yeah, what the what, right? <laughs> so so um, I think you'll hear that. Um, we're going to, um, I, the, let me just roll back on that a little bit. The definition that I want to throw out there, um, and I think this is a wide net, so if you guys will grant me the grace to say that the anti-hero is a compromised hero, I think that that can be a pretty wide net, okay? And so we'll, we'll start there, and I think that we'll hear our sort of different opinions about what an anti-hero is. We'll kind of come through. So I'm going to do like a really quick history of anti-hero in the, in the 20th century. Um, and it, it, it's, anti-hero has been a really interesting phenomenon because... It is something that that it's there have been antiheroes in literature going way back, but they just weren't as developed as they are now, and they certainly weren't as popular, and they probably weren't even considered um, characters that you would have sort of any sort of empathy for, and, and, and clearly that has changed. So, in the and we get into the 1900s and in the 1920s, we see. Um, I, I know, Renee, you were harking back even a little farther to Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment. That's right. And I'm thinking uh, back to like Jay Gatsby in The Great Gatsby, who's this um, this entrepreneur who sort of comes from nothing. He's sort of tortured and he will do weird things because he's tortured. And um, an interesting trope that we'll see in any heroes at the end of the book, spoiler alert, he's dead. In the, we get into the depression and um, we start to see sort of a different kind of anti-hero, more the almost the kind of gangster. So there's Tom Powers, who is James Cagney and William Wel in William Wellman's. So we see James Cagney, who is Tom Powers in William Wellman's Public Enemy, and he's a guy. He has some things that you kind of like. He likes his mom, right? But he's a bad guy. And in the end, interestingly enough. He's dead. Um, in Vietnam, in that era, we actually sort of move into this time where we start to see a little bit more sociopathy. Tom Powers probably had some sociopathy in him, but um, we're really starting to see characters who are more and more ambiguous pop up. So we've got Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver, and um, he doesn't die in the end, but he actually pantomimes killing himself. So I get to say, almost dead. Um, coming into much more sort of um, current provenance. We've got um, Ildris Elba as Stringer Bell in The Wire. Dead at the end of the series. We have Tony Soprano. You can argue this, but dead, okay? Everybody, he died at the end of that series. And Walter White, dead. We all knew that was coming, right? So in it, one of the interesting things that we see is there's a little maybe morality tale about these anti-heroes that in the end, you end up dead. And I think that that might arise out of this idea that we sort of want them to find some kind of redemption, and very often they don't. Um, there's something I want to read from an article that was by H. Eric Bender in Psychology Today, September 29, 2013, on the rise of the anti-hero. 
Um, said it might be because their moral complexity more closely mirrors our own. They're flawed. They're still developing, learning, and growing. And sometimes in the end, they tend they trend towards heroism. And sometimes in the end, they trend towards heroism. We root for their redemption and wring our hands when they pay for their mistakes. They surprise us, they disappoint us, and they're anything but predictable. And to me, I think that's one of the reasons that 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 we like them in literature is that they're fun in a way because we really don't know what they do. Like Superman, I can kind of figure out what Superman's going to do in just about any situation. But these anti-heroes are really kind of the loose cannons of the literary world, sometimes even more than the villains. The villains, a lot of times, we can kind of figure out what they're going to do. But the um, anti-heroes, a lot of times, we really just don't know. Um, so I just want to give a kind of a recent example um, for me of some anti-heroes. I really I want to open the discussion up to here because I know that Renee and Jeff, I know you guys both have a lot to say about this and you can contextualize it in some really different interesting ways. But I've been watching this show called The Boys on Amazon and I didn't want to watch it because I'm not into superheroes at all. But I watched it on under advisement, and I totally loved it. And there are a couple characters in there. So for anybody who's watching it, there's Butcher. And Butcher, I think, is a classic anti-hero. He's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And Real, real quick. So I'm not sure when. So we're recording this at the beginning of September. I'm not sure when we're actually going to air it. Okay. Are you going to be kidding anything that could be spoiler for somebody who hasn't seen the show yet? I'll, I'll jump back and just okay. say it's a spoiler. And I'm okay. almost done. Okay. So, okay. And, and so I've been watching. Um, let me just jump back. So I want to share with you just like, I, I think, like a very current example of sort of an anti-hero. And then somebody who plays almost kind of an opposite that sort of helps us see who the anti-hero is. And there's this character of Butcher in this show that I'm watching on Amazon called The Boys. Promise not to spoil anything here. Um, Butcher is really like, he's doing a lot of the wrong things. I'm sorry. So Butcher here, he's really doing a lot of the right things for really the wrong reasons. And then there's Howie, who ends up being the almost sort of Luke Skywalker character to Butcher's Han Solo. And he's a character, he's doing the right things, but he's really doing them for the wrong reasons. And I find a real distinction there that like I can really pin anti-hero right on Butcher. Whereas Howie, even though he's a little bit morally ambiguous, like Howie, I can say, okay, maybe, you know, maybe he actually has it in him to be a hero and you'll just have to watch the boys to find that out. So I know in the conversation, you guys put a, were putting a lot of things in context of feminism and how people of different races or have been sort of portrayed. So, Renee, do you want to kind of jump in on this and, and kind of talk a little well, bit? Well, so what you're talking about, a little bit what you touched upon is this idea of intent. Like why, the reason someone is doing something. And I think that's a lot of what we see within the portrayal of the protagonist who's an anti-hero is understanding that the things that they're doing which are bad, there's a, well, I should say that we understand why they're doing what they're doing. But I see an antihero as someone who actually is doing bad things, regardless of what. And, and that part of what we end up learning is that they have they have a quote unquote good reason to do bad things. And, and so th this shift in being willing to show people doing bad things, which I think is not again, you know, I'm not really come from a historical perspective. I'm sort of like focused on the now, which for me is the part where where women, for example, like one of the few antiheroes I can think of is Fleabag, uh, because she is a character who is really bad. She does bad things. She's not nice. 
she, um, you know, leads, she does something that sort of, there's some ambiguity about what it, it really destroys one of her friends. But through all of it, I'm rooting for her. And, and, and even her rationales for some of it are a little bit, a little bit, um, a little bit unclear, but I just, she's doing horrible things and I love it. But she's also one of the few women who we get to see doing that type of stuff. For 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 those of us like me that don't know who Fleabag is, can you just kind of contextualize that? Yeah. Real quick? So, so. Um, Phoebe Waller Bridge is a um, is a um, British actress, producer, writer who's created this this series. It's only two seasons long, called Fleabag, and she, the main character, who's never given any other name except for Fleabag, is called Fleabag because she does horrible things. She's sleeping with people she shouldn't. She's wreaking havoc in her family. And it's a, a modern drama of her doing that type of type of stuff, and we watch it. And she also breaks the fourth wall, so she interacts with with us as um, viewers, and it kind of makes us complicit in everything that she's doing. Like we're we're involved in rooting for her. The second season, which is not a spoiler, is she's um, starts to have a romantic relationship with the priest, and so you know that it's Fleabag. They will sleep together. Like it's just in it, and. And you are rooting for it to happen. You are rooting for her to sleep with the priest. You're like, please sleep with that So you're that really priest. not even rooting for her to redeem herself. No, you, I am you not interested in redemption. in the bad I, things that she is doing. Exactly. I'm not interested in redemption. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. It is great. She's having fun. Yes. Then maybe in real life, like if your friend was doing that, you might go, eh, not so much. Yeah, that's that's the paradox of like seeing an antihero in, in cinema, TV, books. You wouldn't actually like them. In the same way that you wouldn't actually like a saint, like I talk about how um, if Jesus was alive in your roommate, you would you would he would be so annoying because he's too <laughs> pure, like he's too good. There's something about people who are Jesus, too. Pu- stop it, really. Jesus. It, the bathroom is really clean, and there's always toilet paper on the toilet paper roll, and it's so annoying. But if you were out of fish and bread, he would be great. He would. Be, I don't like fish. Oh, he okay. would be very. I'd be like, really, this again, fish sticks, sourdough, right? So yeah, there we go. But but right, like anyone who's on any of those extremes, th- there's there's not a lot of like depth to that, and so it becomes boring, right? But something happened where for a long time heroes were meant to be very pure of heart and action. Right. So you so you're getting to you're getting to kind of the actually before I get into that, just the question I asked you about Fleabag. That's that's an interesting question on its own. Thirty years ago, we all would have been working from the same reference as far as what media we consume. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Now it is so splintered. Like yeah. we could we could talk for three hours about things that we all watch, and the other two people have no clue what you're talking about. Never seen. Yeah. Um, the boys. I still haven't seen the boys. So. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, moving on. So, the, what you're getting at with Jesus, and it's actually one of the first words in my notes here, is is the classical hero, the the person who does the right thing the right way, for the right reason, with a smile on his face. And I think at a, at a very basic level, the rise of the anti-hero is, is just because it's, it's more relatable, particularly, particularly in, in minority communities. So you referenced like uh, the public enemy. So particularly in, 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 my, in communities that are ostracized from like in where we are, white America, or in like post post Watergate, post Vietnam, where people are disenfranchised. Yeah, the public or, enemy. He was Irish, which at the time would have been considered yeah. definitely like an out, an outer, an outside. Group. Right. Yeah. So that was like 1931, and then in 1932, you had the first the first iteration of Scarface, which was Chicago Italian mafia movie. Right. Um, and then in either it was the late 70s or late 80s when you had Brian De Palma's Taxi Driver or um, Scarface. 
so so there there comes a point where as people became more disillusioned and they the the anti-hero started to rise because it was more relatable i th- i think that's that's one of the key characteristics between what makes an anti-hero versus a classical hero is that we can actually relate to yeah the the anti-hero i think yeah. that there may be this loop too which is really fascinating that that comes to us from art and literature and media and all of those things that as the world is continued to be presented to us as being more ambiguous we see ourselves as being more ambiguous so we relate more to people who are and i believe we're totally ambiguous right so we relate more to characters that are more ambiguous and so we like we i think we have a way higher threshold i think if we had thrown a bunch of anti-heroes to people in the 1890s who are used to black hats and white hats they'd have a really difficult time dealing with not that they're not smart enough or savvy enough they just would not have recognized the form so the well, yeah real real quick this the, that loops because i'm it's just an idea that popped my head and, and, it's, and i don't want to lose it the what you just said about that feedback loop you made me think about um daryl bem's self-perception theory so Daryl Bem is a real he's a he's a really famous like um, experimental psychologist who's also like kind of known as kind of a nut because he's he's the one that's done he's the one that's been studying ESP and extrasensory perception you know, or mm. that is extrasensory perception. Yeah. But his self-perception theory is really fascinating. And basically he posits that all of us individually are really bad at interpreting our own motivations and our own inner thoughts. And we actually rely on external cues. We're really good at reading other people's thoughts, other people's ideas. So we're, we're, so we rely on how other people interact with us for us to build up our own model of, of what we are. And that, and that in, in, in terms of art and media, the more art media shifts one way, that actually might be shaping how we interpret our, ourselves as individuals. And then we then in turn create more of that kind of art, which then creates, which kind of creates that feedback loop. I mean, I don't think we are individuals, honestly. Like we exist, we are social creatures. We live purely in a system in which the reflection of our community builds us. Nobody, nobody exists in a vacuum. And so I think that's, yeah, that's part of it. It's a little hard, I think, to shake out what's the chicken and the egg of that in the sense of like, are we seeing different media emerge because it's also something that the, the, the society and the zeitgeist is allowing to emerge? Like what pushes what? I would like to think art pushes that, but I also think that the, some of the art that I would create is only possible only because we are where we are, you know? So like right. that becomes part of that. Yeah, and the trauma yeah. That, that like we share as a culture, I mean, thinking about Fight Club, you know, we really do root for the banking system to come down, even yeah. though like that probably wouldn't work out well for most people if the banking system came down, but it feels really good when it happens in that movie. And so I, to me, I think that's sort of like that's a way that we get to be rebels for an hour and a half or for a couple hours because we can root for somebody else that when something bad happens to them that hurts, like we get all the we get all the good adrenaline rush. But, you know, when somebody punches them, like we don't have to feel that because it's not us. So it's all sort of an externalized experience that we get to have. But it's cathartic. But what you said a moment ago about how we're not individuals, that sparked another thought with me. There is a there the largest organism in the world is actually a mold in like northern California. Yeah, it's like under the soil and stretches hundreds and hundreds of miles. If you come across and see a single mushroom, you would think, well, that's that's an individual mushroom, but it's actually just one piece of this of a hundred mile long creature. But can you imagine you that humans. mushroom and the whole thing's gone like fuck you? <laughs> and I think I think that's the basis of now, now 
kind of we're going way off topic, but it's, but it's I'm, I'm rolling. Giant, wait, that should have been in the monster <laughs> conversation. Right, exactly. That's actually I think I think the, that's the, the root. Mold. I think that's the root of transcendentalism, is that we're all we're all individual manifestations of this, and it's also the root of rationalism, which neither of us are rationalists, but at least me and Scott aren't. I'm an irrationalist person. Um, but it, but it's kind of this idea that there's this there's this collective knowledge that exists, and we're all just individual expressions of that. I so. mean, kind of. I mean, I think in a practical scale, I I definitely don't like that idea because I want to have a sense of my own identity. But, but realistically, you just said we're all, but you just said no, we're but realistically, I was it's, like on a day to day practice. I want to be like no, I'm myself. Yeah. But like realistically, it's it's, 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 a, it's an interesting duality of of this collective, this collective versus this individual. I think either or, it's okay to have an opinion. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like at some point you still have to kind of throw opinion. a stake in the ground whether or not, you know, we're deterministic or not. Like you still got to get up and go to work. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Still got to make right. the bucks. But, um, but, and then, but to actually get us back on topic. <laughs> so I think, you know, one, one thing, you know, me and Renee in particular have just like a first principle disagreement about mm-hmm. What is what is a what is an antihero? And for me, I think, particularly starting with the Godfather, you could go back a little bit further to the, like Public Enemy, and there's there's some westerns that I'm not particularly familiar with, um, some Sergio Sergio Leone movies mm-hmm. where where the spaghetti the, westerns, right? It's probably around the same time as the Godfather, actually. I think it's a little, a little earlier. earlier. God, God, yeah. Godfather's early seventies. The Sergio Leone movies, I think, are more sixties. Yeah. yeah, could be. Um, but there, there was this kind of this kind of this shift where you could, we could argue that they're antiheroes, and from a certain perspective, particularly like with the Godfather, if, you, if you're if you're if you're Italian and you're in, and you're you know struggling to make it in this country that that clearly doesn't want you, um, you I could kind of see how how that Godfather could be a hero, but I think but for me it's more appropriate to label those characters as villains who just happen to be the protagonist. And one of the things that happened, one of the things that, that I've seen happen over the last 30 or 40 years is these blurring of the lines. We've kind of abandoned classical heroes and almost all of our stories now are either centered on antiheroes or actually centered around villains. And yeah, we well, except for Captain America. Captain America is not right. Captain America, Superman, and Luke, Wonder Woman. Who Luke Skywalker. Yeah. And maybe Luke Skywalker. Yeah, very, very But even he didn't want to do it at first. He was not up to it to begin with. He just kind of took it on. I would say Katniss Everdeen, the Hunger Games as well, kind of. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, there, there, there are some other examples. Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, if you go back, you know, the, you know, King Arthur is probably, you know, in Jesus. Depending on where you think the original about Jesus story. Oh, I think if you get far enough into Jesus' story, you found he wasn't really thrilled about his role. So that's right. true. Um, you know, one of the things I want to throw out too is that when we get to about the Vietnam era, I think the country's looking at itself and saying, fuck us. Right? Actually, I mean, all like everything that we thought about ourselves at that point is kind of out the window, regardless of which side we were on. Because there was stuff that was going on that we had to stand behind psychologically in order that we could just go home to our families right and so i'm thinking that there's like this sort of shift even in terms of what we will allow in our heroes so that so speaking of america i I hadn't thought about this before but you can almost you can almost look at america's shifting perception and within this debate there was this idea that america was the classical hero Doing, you know, the beacon of light on the hill, doing the right thing for the right reasons, the for the better. City on the hill. Yeah, the shiny, exactly, the shiny city on the hill, and clear, and you know, World War II 
we can almost get away with that, with our perception. But then by Vietnam, that was clearly shattered. Thank you, television. Yeah. Right. So, so at best, you could say, you could say that America is more of an anti-hero character. At least the the, the perception of America. Or we can't figure out. No, we, when yeah. I was in Australia in '96, they have you know I was there at the University of Melbourne, Melbourne, as they say, <laughs> and um, I was there for six months, and they have a program. Like one of the things you can major in, in is, is the study of the United States. And there is just so on a three week course. No, it is <laughs> sadly not. And so it's it's interesting to encounter Australians who have a greater sense of our history because they they study it. Right. So people can major in studying the United States. You know, my dad is an immigrant from somewhere else. The, the, the light of the United States shines fairly bright, mm-hmm. I would say, until Trump era, like fairly bright. Like there is still this idea. And then I did refugee resettlement in Kansas City. Um, I was Iranian, Somalis, Sudanese. Oh, I worked the, with refugees here in Tucson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And and the, the the beacon of the the promise in the U.S. is still really big. It's still bright, um, and and it might still be even a little bit more. But I I would say that that it being tarnished happened much more recently. It, well, I, I think well what what I was getting to I think I think at this point is depending on where you are in the world, America is almost the villain. Oh, yeah. yeah. And whether or not that's... Yeah, we're not an anti-hero. We're and, straight and, up villain. And, and, and I'm usually... I'm, I'm strictly talking about the perception, not necessarily the reality. And that'll actually that'll actually lead to a point I'll talk about a little in a little bit. But um, depending on where you are, I mean, if you were if you were in Iran in the early 80s, America was the villain. Correct. From, you know, Australia it might be more recently, but... Well, if well it's, no, oh, they adored if, us, but... If it's okay to... Um, if it's okay to rig an election, which clearly it is in the United States, okay to rig an election, it's okay to be Dexter and kill bad people. I mean, like those things, like all of the things that at one point, like were just like off the table, like you you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. I think that there's a lot of like, hey, you kind of can, or maybe you can. I don't think, although I would say that, I don't think our mor- morality has shifted in any way. I think that how we're portraying the morality has shifted because we've always been shits. Like the, like humans have always, I mean, you know, like we have not been great creatures and we have always been horrible to women, to people of color, like it's just been bad. So I think, but, but there was this sort of fidelity to a a concept of who we were meant to be. And we could justify colonialism and all these other things under the guise of, of it being the right thing to do. It never was. It never was. Right. Um, And I think we're just getting better at being like, that wasn't right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. and that this really leads to what my what my personal big issue is. And so growing up, I I was that guy. I loved the antihero. I loved Han Solo. I always wanted to be the rogue if I was playing Dungeons and Dragons or doing anything like that. I always wanted to be the the aloof loner that just maybe I'll come help you guys out. You know, mm-hmm. that was that was that what that was my jam, as somebody here likes to say. Yep. Um, but in the last in the last ten years or so, I've I really I aspire to be, you know, I aspire to be Captain America. That's you know I aspire to be a good person that does good for the right reason. And with with this shift in my perspective, looking back at these antiheroes, one of the what the, the biggest issue I have, like with a Tony Soprano or a Walter White or um, uh, Jordan Belfort, the the character in Wolf of Wall Street. You can only you can only consider them heroic or heroes. Forget anti-hero. 
in order you can only cons- you can only root for them if you bury the victims if you completely if you completely ignore what the what they did to their victims or what happened to their victims we can only root for america as a country if we ignore what we did in peru or chile like more chile than peru or or nicaragua or el salvador or iran you know so we as as a culture as a country we we aspire to these anti-heroes and but there's a cost there's a cost to that there's a very human cost to that aspiration so i, don't know, I feel like that so, so let's go back to the initial question so we've talked about this a lot but like why do you think they're why do you think anti-heroes are like i'd say anti-heroes should be on the cover of time magazine you know, for the person of the year has got to be the anti-hero, right? I mean, the anti-hero is just so popular right now. It so is. where are we seeing those anti-heroes, and, and what are the ones that we're seeing right now telling us? Both of them just looked at me like... like <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Let, let's, let's, let's slow down a little bit, because that was a huge... So who are the anti-heroes we're seeing right now? Like, almost everybody. I mean, Aquaman... Men. Look at the shift in Aquaman, and both of you look at me like we. No, I saw Aquaman, okay. but. But look, so if if you remember the Aquaman from the Super Friends days, right? Orange shirt, riding the seahorse, green pants, you know, classical hero. Now he's got a little more edge to him, and not just because it's played by Jason Momoa, but even in the comics, it shifted to a more harder, tattooed, bearded. Yeah. Like he's he's just a more more violent, rugged individual. So he's more shifting more to the anti-hero versus the. Quite frankly, uh, mo- very, very often mocked version of the the seahorse riding Aquaman. So, so, I mean, almost everything we do now, almost every character is is an anti-hero of some sort. I, I okay, maybe, but for me, they feel like they they feel separate. Like I feel like if we look at John Wick, that's not a good, that's not a guy doing good things, right? But I'm still rooting for him. Like for me, for. I look at it a lot within narrative, within story. He so does like bad things in a very stylish way. Oh, he looks so good doing it. Okay. Yeah. But like if we look at Crime and Punishment, Russ Kolnikoff, right? He kills the woman. And he goes through essentially an existential crisis about before he does it and then he does it. And then he's being slowly haunted. He's like like the the inspectors trying to, you know, catch him in it. And I am generally rooting for him to escape. To to be free. Because what we do within story is we it's framing and that's one of the topics we sort of have on our table and our agenda to talk about at some point is how you frame narrative helps you understand why it's why someone does something like that it's like the conflict of you don't want the baby cheetah to starve but you also but if you're watching it from the baby cheetah you want them to catch the little what are those what are they cheetahs like the meerkat the meerkat right you want a meerkat to get eaten but then when you're looking at it from the meerkat story you don't want the cheetah to catch them right so that conflict of how is that story framed in a way for we understand that that whoever this person is there's a complexity to their experience which can allow you to be empathetic to them which is why sometimes it's not good to know someone's story right like to understand what's going on with them in that way so you're you're skirting with an analogy that to me is a little troubling um, when you talk, when you start comparing like the cheetah trying to catch, like I actually just watched a really cool video of, of a cheetah hunting wildebeest and the wildebeest. Yeah, so so that and the wildebeest really jacked that cheetah up. But and I, I don't want to like 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 be like stomp on everybody, but I I do think that's kind of a dangerous analogy when we 
when we look at like predator and prey in the natural in the in the animal kingdom and we say and we and it's and we can our our sympathies can change to the to the antelope or the cheetah the lion or the gazelle whatever but, but if we start applying that same standard to human interaction where we look at a jordan belfort and sympathize with him we completely to the point where we ignore what happened to his victims that's all storytelling now that's that that's what i'm saying it's like that's the power of it if we can frame it like so tell the story of their victims okay right. but that but then that's on the art to do that right like the art is pushing us to to uh, examine people and look at people and now i would say there's something else underlying that the um the wolf of wall street which is it's privileged white men and, and i don't think he was actually all that sympathetic like i'm i i disliked him intensely with oh i mean i did yes. too but right. we have we have very similar political worldviews. right but so like i that is that is the power of storytelling, is that if you tell the story in the right way, right. you can make sympathy or empathy for something. Right. And that's the problem. If you, you can frame almost anybody to be sympathetic. Yes. And But when we do that, there is a real world cost to it. Well, did, did, yeah. either you, did either of you see American Animals? I mean, that, no, not, no, but I know which one you're I talking about. Not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I too. So I saw that with a friend of mine. And the whole, the whole premise of the movie is a group of boys were were robbing a book of a really a really famous book of birds from a library and the whole movie is is them getting up to this point and then they they do the robbery and they assault not sexually assault but physically assault the librarian tie her up and as we were and as we're leaving it my friend was very sympathetic towards these boys and she even made a comment about that really diminished the harm they did to the woman i'm like well yeah, that's because the filmmakers framed it from their point of view. Right. If we, if all these stories were framed from the victim's point of view, these anti-heroes that we talk about would not be anti-heroes. They would be straight up villains. Exactly. And that's, I guess, well, because we were just talking about this, is that that's why there needs to be more stories in hands of people who are the victims, who are like that, like women, people yes. of color. Like that's why that's important. Yeah. But even within that, I think the risk is that if we look at women or people of color, if all we expect is purity and victimhood from them, that's not telling an accurate story of their experiences either. And that they can also be antiheroes. They can be villains. And that there has to be like a breadth of that as well. And so I so so I think we have to also be careful not to say that like if you just do it from the meerkat, the meerkat eats the bug and the bug, we're rooting for the bug. Again, like it's it's within a chain that framing the story changes changes our perspectives, but it's not just about yeah. them being pure. But here, here's, where, here's where that analogy fails for me. The meerkat has to eat the bug to survive. The cheetah has to eat the wildebeest to survive. We don't have to, we don't have to kill people on the operating room table. We don't have to sell drugs. We don't have to kill. But we do we, sometimes have to sell drugs. And I think if we can understand that there's a reason that sometimes people sell drugs or or prostitute themselves. Well, drug, drug, so drugs and prostitution is a bad example for me because I don't think either of the one. I don't think either of those are moral issues. Right, I agree. But uh, we don't have to rape anybody. We don't have to assault anybody. We don't have to build walls to keep people out of the country. Right, but if we understand. Right. But but then those things still happen. And so I don't think I think this idea that we shouldn't show those things would we, that that's not the unilateral, I think, it's, sort of point of that. It's, right? it's not about how you show it. It's about how you frame it. Right. I'm yes. About, and I, I agree with that. Like, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. Mentioned earlier, which is Dexter, because the, the Dexter character is clearly built in such a way that we understand that Dexter has to kill people. 
right, in order to be Dex. Like, we give that up. And so we end up rooting for Dexter to yes. kill bad people because, oh, he's made this great decision, which in real life you would go, well, that's abhorrent. He covers it up and he does, he lies to people and stuff like that. But but in the, in the, in the context of the story and remembering that it's a story, we root for Dexter to kill bad people. And there's usually like one really bad person that we want him to kill by the end of the season. Yeah, the and, bot, oh, yeah. You know what? He typically does it good for Dexter. Right. The, the thing that's interesting to me in that is that we have to look inward and say, why is it that that is like, why do we actually identify with that act? And like, I get the meerkat has to eat the bug and the wildebeest gets hunted by the by the the cheat. I, I totally get that. But this is a situation where there's a lot more ambiguity and I think we see that ambiguity in ourselves. And it creates some real sort of moral issues when you want when I really like the Sopranos. And I really identified with Tony Soprano. I didn't personally identify with him, but you know, he goes to therapy, right? Right. You know, and he has these conversations and you know, he didn't have the best childhood, poor guy, right? And at some point it actually does this great thing for me because I get to step away and go, he's a fucking serial killer. Like if he was a real guy, he would be like the worst serial killer. And I just keep letting that go and letting that go and letting that go. So it actually provides whether or not I think like it's it, whether or not I think that, you know, he is a noble character or not. It actually he's a great character for me to think about. And he holds up a mirror to myself and helps me think about myself in a really new way and realize that I have a lot more sort of muck in there than I think I do, you know, because if I'm yeah, a human being, right? Yeah, yeah, you have dark stuff inside you. Yeah. yeah. And that's for me, I think where the line is, is that like, there's a strong reality difference between for me between reality and art. So I'm happy to root for something in art and know that I'm not going to do it in person, right? Like, and I feel that that's not questionable. That's not, a, you know what I mean? That line doesn't blur for me. So I, you said something that may or may not spark a whole another long discussion. So we, at some point we may want to talk about whether we whether we cut this and pick it up another time. But you were talking when you were talking about Dexter, and you're talking about this bad guy killing even worse people, and you start rooting for him to kill these really bad people, and it just made me think that, and, I, and I'm just I'm really just spitballing right now that maybe the root of this love for the anti-hero is a desire for justice that we're not getting, that you can't get in real life. So... And vengeance. I, I mean, mean, I think So that, for you... So, oh, so go ahead. I, I'm just going to throw in. Yeah. You know, justice is a nice word. Vengeance, I think, is a not-so-nice word, but I think we want it. Well, vengeance. We really want eye it for an eye. on our enemies. Fiery, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so John, you, you mentioned John Wick earlier, and I think he does fall in squarely into that anti-hero role because he's actually, he's actually per performing vengeance on people that are that we have deemed as as uh so maybe we should do vengeance at some point yeah let's see. yeah and take a, and do a deep dive on that for a new podcast because it you know like for you we haven't gotten we haven't gotten to and we're probably going to miss it but you know i know you're you're really passionate about the way women are portrayed mm -hmm. and, and particularly the lack of women anti-heroes um so there's a whole uh oh, what's the movie um i spit on your grave 
Oh, right. About about a woman, yep. about a, a woman, a rape victim getting vengeance. And I won't watch that movie. I, I saw it as a kid. I don't ever need to see it again. Right. Um, and then there's the whole series of black exploitation films of people that are ostracized. You know, the the Italian gangster films. There is there is kind of a sense of of communities trying to get some sort of some sort of vengeance for their plot plot in life. But so it sounds like there's a lot to talk about, and we're probably going to need to leave some things on the yeah. table, right? Right. This. But maybe we'll maybe we'll pick this conversation up again. Perhaps. Yeah. That might be kind of fun. Yeah. So should we leave it here? I guess so. All right. So I guess that I led in, so I will take us out. This is What the What. I'm Scott. I'm Renee. And I'm Jeff. Thanks for listening. We didn't do our like. You, you missed the what are we. Yeah, what are we excited oh, about? Do you want to just do it now? I'm still rolling. We can just, oh. So, so um, <laughs> clearly we've got a lot to talk about, but what are you guys excited about this week? What's, what's, uh, what's on your radar? So I gathered a group of friends um, because we watched Fleabag together. This is a group of friends we watched Fleabag. And it reminded me immediately of this Australian limited, this Australian series called Please Like Me. And that is similar in that it is a person, a young man, who is kind of horrible in a way that's just horrible, but not like he he's just snarky and kind of like selfish. And he's a delight to watch because he's also really funny. And so we all got together to watch that. And it, I don't watch things more than once. And then I was like, wow, maybe I should watch this one again. It was really well done. He's just hilarious. Yeah. Jeff. So I just uh, got around to finishing Orange is the New Black, the season, the, the finale of that series. It, it had been struggling for the last couple of years, but it came back in a pretty good way for the final season. And I was, it was quite... Um, and it it really does fit into everything we've been talking about today in terms of justice and vengeance and and um, telling other people to, the anti, almost everybody in that show is an antihero of some form or another. Mm. Um, but yeah, they 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 faltered for a while, but they stuck the landing. So good on them. There you go. That's the important part. Sticking that landing. I've been watching uh, finished watching a show called Retribution on Netflix. Four part series takes place near Edinburgh. And um, the thing that I love about it, no spoiler here, because if you watch 10 minutes into it, you've got this, is you know who the killer is right away. Oh. And then it takes off from there. And it's more about family secrets. and Kind of like really Broadchurch? So I would totally say, yeah, it has some, it has a little bit of a, that sort of Broadchurch darkness in it. Huh. So uh, I would really suggest watching Retribution. Saw the, and, it, you know, I really like series that are four episodes. Because I think sometimes when they're eight or nine or ten, sometimes they really kind of trail off. You're like, solve it already. Like, yeah. yeah. This one, there was no trailing off. It's just like the train is coming at you from the minute and, you know, four hours into it or four episodes, you know, you finally figure out what happened. This Gillian Anderson isn't in that one, is it? She is not. Okay. That's a different one. Yes. What? Wait. uh, But. What? But the dude who's in the fall with the beard. Scott Hmm. doesn't like female heroes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I like people who can act well. You don't like Gillian Anderson. I like is it Gillian or Gillian? I do. Gillian, Gillian. <laughs> You've already said it twice. Gillian, Gillian, and I don't know what her, it is. I like Gillian from that show where she was a waitress. That was great. What? Waitress? That's the one at the top of the Bonaventure in L.A. We Gillian, don't know. We don't know. It's, you guys are too young. So. We are very young. It's called, um, I can't remember now. This is going to be a really. That's going to be a whole other. 
podcast. Uh, it's not her. Oh. It's somebody oh. else named Jillian. Oh, oh. So you were going to do that old man thing where you're like confusing two people? Yes. You know um, who I'm talking about, though, from the I X-Files? Do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she was pretty good on the X-Files, so. But have you seen her in anything since where she wasn't? Bleak House? Like, wooden? Bleak House? I saw Bleak House. It was so bleak. <laughs> I mean, it's in the title, right? Thanks for listening. That was What the What. You can follow us on social media at, at WTW Popcast, and that's on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also email us at WTWPopcast at gmail.com. And I just want to point out to everybody that that is Popcast. So we're talking P O P cast. You can also find me on Twitter at Special Feather. And you can find me on Twitter at the BW Fans and on YouTube, Bandwagon Fans. And this is Scott. I'm available at Facebook and Instagram as Scott Grissel. Right, so I think we should get out of here. Yeah, we should. Yes. Say, Renee, say your name and get us out of here. Renee. Jeff. Scott. And this is What the What. Thanks for listening. Bye.